Hello, everyone. This is Seamus McGarvey, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty well. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. I know that we'd actually talked about being in the same room to record this, and uh, then we both kind of got lazy, and we were uh, happy with the whole Zoom setup. <laughs> I don't know if lazy is the right word. It's just that I think we were both busy, and trying to you know make that work didn't didn't happen. But I'm up for next week. We can we can go for it. Let's totally do it next week. And and to be fair too, you aren't past the two week window of vaccination yet, right? Like yeah, you're close. T- it's tomorrow. Like a, you're like tomorrow tomorrow so I, I feel like we probably could have done it and uh, we just didn't make it happen but that's okay that's okay because we have an awesome show who is on the show Ilya we have a great friend of the show back again Seamus McGarvey Seamus McGarvey is uh I didn't get to do the interview this time you got to do the interview I'm incredibly jealous but can't wait to hear it yeah I, I feel a little bad because we were on somewhat of a tight schedule and I, I would love to bring him back at some point if he would come back and do kind of a deeper dive. But he did talk extensively about his new TV series on HBO Max, The Nevers. So everyone go check that out. It's, uh, it's really cool. Although I was chastened to not refer to it as steampunk, I would say <laughs> it has a steampunky kind of a look and feel, even though I guess it's considered something else. And if you can't get enough Seamus McGarvey, you can always go back and listen to my interview from a couple years ago. And we cover a lot of ground, including movies like High Fidelity and other stuff, too, which are like, you know, I oh, we talked like, about High Fidelity. Yeah. Oh, man, you're, you're stealing my thunder here. I thought like I had something that you weren't going to talk about. And you talked about it. Did you talk about Nosedive, that episode of Black Mirror? Because I talked about it. About I, that. I, I did not talk about Nosedive. All right. No. All right. OK, well, hey, uh, if you go back and listen to my interview, then you can listen to us talk about Nosedive. We did talk about one of his more obscure short films that uh, is extraordinarily charming. And uh, he had uh, some very interesting things to talk about with that. Man, I'll I'll leave it at that. You win. Leave it at that. Fine. You win. But uh, first, we have a very interesting close focus to talk about. I feel like the world being reshaped by COVID now that we're, I hate to say, we're not on the other side of the pandemic, but we can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel here in America, even if in certain countries, you know, like India and Brazil, it's as bad as it's ever been. But the theatrical business is starting to kind of peek its little head out. And in fact, actually, my wife and I went and saw a second movie in the theater over the weekend, if you can believe that. Whoa. No, I can't believe that. What'd you go see? We saw Wrath of Man, the new Guy Ritchie movie with uh, Jason Statham. What was it? Extraordinarily violent. <laughs> That's pretty much what you expect, though, I think, with Guy Ritchie <laughs> and Jason Statham. I, I don't think it was like you know, a bunch of little old ladies get together for tea. It's, you know, it was not my dinner with Andre. It was, you know. <laughs> it was... I'd like to see Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham's My Dinner with Andre. I think that'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> Nice. Uh, okay, but yeah, we. You know, a- honestly, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn are both alive. We should make my dinner with Andre too. Yeah, we, you could totally make a sequel of that. It'd be fantastic. Holy crap! We totally could. <laughs> we need to do that. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll start writing but, right but, now. <laughs> but anyway, so our close focus is about uh, a new thing that you that you brought to my attention, which was about the AMC uh, CEO. He, he quoted Churchill in their earnings call. There's a great IndieWire story about it. And uh, yeah, a- Adam uh, Aaron, uh, he basically said, now is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned about this, by the way, was there was a movie with Chris Christopherson and I believe Cheryl Teague's called Millennium that came out in 1989. Oh, I saw and the very end of the very end of it was that exact quote. And I had no idea that it was Churchill. So it wasn't until I read this article that I was like, oh, Churchill said that, which maybe speaks more to my historical illiteracy than anything else. But they just dropped that in the movie like it was their own writing. And I remember being, you know, a teenager being like, whoa, profound. So anyway. <laughs> It's the end of the beginning. So they're saying that it, they are at the end of the beginning of negotiations with studios to create theatrical windows. Because basically, uh, with, with COVID raging through the world, all of the streamers have been kind of uh, in the Wild West. And they could make their own rules about when they were going to put stuff on their streaming services. And now that we're going back to theaters slowly, the theater chains want that window. Because if 
you can get it on HBO Max, there's that much more chance that you're not going to go watch it in their theater. Yeah, uh, it, the 90 days was sort of the standard for uh, premium VOD, um, but now the industry standard arrangements are kind of being thrown to the wind, and there's all these different rules that studios are, are negotiating with the exhibitors. And like, for example, Warner Brothers, starting in 2022, is going to release, nothing's going to stream on HBO Max for 45 days. 45 days is their window. Now, no longer the same that that other studios are, are going to do that because they don't put all their stuff on HBO Max Universal. They've got like a contingency based on box office. Like so, for example, any film that grosses under 50 million in the opening weekend can be released on premium VOD after 17 days. But if it makes over 50 million, they're going to hold out for 31 days. Uh, Paramount, their films are going to have a 45 or 60 day window and they're just going to figure it out pre-release. Sony has no policy to date. Disney, they are going to do some day and date for Disney Plus subscribers, and then others are going to have a window. So it's kind of hard to say, say what, what's going to happen here. And it seems like the deals don't necessarily aren't going to line up with every theater exhibitor. Like it might there might be some some differences. So we'll, we'll see. It is a bummer, I think, because, you know, theatrical movie going is the way a lot of us prefer to do it. But also for every one of you and me, I talk to a number of my friends and family members and they're like, I'd rather wait till it's on TV and watch it at home, even if that means paying more for it on a PVOD platform. So eh, I think it's a little frustrating in that it's going to push the studios more towards a blockbuster mentality because more people are probably more likely to show up to see a new Avengers movie or a new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie or whatever on opening night because you you want to see that big massive spectacle as opposed to let's say a brilliant Errol Morris documentary that's probably not going to make 50 million theatrically and so it kind of uh, well in the case of Universal it sets a weird an arbitrary bar that measures a movie's theatrical viability by how much money it's going to bring in and basically nothing else and uh you know like would nomadland have made 50 million dollars had it been released theatrically you know it's hard to say but a lot of times the prestige movies don't so that's a bummer that's a giant bummer but at the same time with covid we sort of have a giant reset in the business and you don't really get that a lot where like a business is caught so dead in its tracks by something that when it has an opportunity to come back they can build it again from scratch because these theatrical windows you know were set in place 50 years ago yeah it's it's really interesting there were some changes with cable and premium cable of course as the industry sort of evolved but for the most part, yeah, things have stayed the same for a long time. And you're exactly right. It's like hitting the reset button. We, we, we don't know exactly uh, how it's all going to shake out, but it seems like theatricals returning. And at least for a while, that is going to be uh, that's going to be a real thing. I can't tell you how many people I talk to uh, who tell me they can't wait to go back and see movies in the theater again. So uh, I, I expect that. I, I mean, it was a lot of fun to go see a movie in the theater, even wearing an N95 mask. It was still pretty cool. What's interesting to me, too, is to think that, like, you know, I think it was in the 1950s like in the 50s when television first came into existence and that's when the movies started experimenting with wider screens and you had cinemascope and cinerama and vistavision and all these things and you know cinemascope sort of has hung around in in the form of anamorphic uh, in fact, in the projectionist booth, we used to refer to it as the scope lens that we would have to put on the projector. Because it, um, was. it was a scope yeah. lens you put on there. Yeah. But anyway, right now, I feel like TVs, you know, you can go down to Best Buy and for, you know, $400, you can get an enormous television. And for not that much more, you can get some amazing sound. So people do believe they can kind of recreate a theatrical-ish experience in their house. I still always argue, and will go, I will go down fighting, that what you're paying for when you go to see a movie in the theater is, is the communal experience, and it's the other audience members you're actually paying for, in addition to bigger screen, bigger sound. Because absolutely, you can get a great picture and great sound in your house now. You can have a 4K television in your house with surround sound and a comedy will still not be as funny a horror movie will still not be as scary a giant spectacle film will still not be as thrilling because you're missing the energy of other people around you so hopefully people will start to appreciate that again i don't know i talk about this occasionally with people but the number one that thing that's most important for your viewing experience is not necessarily the display device or the quality slash brand of the uh, speakers 
really the number one thing that affects your experience is the room, the room that you're in yeah. uh, acoustically where you're sitting. All of that is going to affect your experience more than the best electronics that you could possibly buy and put in your, your house at, at any price. So not saying that there aren't terrible, terrible multiplex experiences. There are a hundred percent. Oh, for sure. But, but uh, don't you think, I mean like multiplexes have been under enormous pressure, I think true. in the last 20 years to get better and better. And, you know, hopefully the arc light comes back in some form. But I feel like here in Los Angeles, the Arclight kind of pioneered a premium movie experience. There are other chains like uh, Alamo Drafthouse that do that. And Cinemark, which is a nationwide chain, you know, the Cinemark Theater near my house are reserved seats. They're reclining leather, extremely comfortable seats. And, you know, the movie going experience there is head and shoulders above what I think even a great multiplex experience would have been 20, 25 years ago. That's going on everywhere. There's a Regal that has heated seats. It's like in Granada Hills or something out here. And I was like, heated seats? We're in California. It's not even that, uh, whatever. Oh, it's so cozy when the air conditioning's pumping and you go like, oh, I'm so cold, but you got your heated seat. It's like, oh, it's so nice. Doesn't it just make you fall asleep? But anyway, um, anyway, uh, you know, uh, I the, the, the movie theater chains are going to have to probably keep doing that. And I feel like this is going to make it maybe a little harder for them. But also maybe when it comes time for Oscars, they might negotiate title by title how long they leave stuff in theaters. Or I don't know. I guess if this is truly the end of the beginning of this negotiation, that means that, you know, maybe it won't be a one size fits all kind of a, a deal and you know when when you do go see a, a documentary in theaters you know in a documentary it's probably not going to make that kind of money they can still let it hang out for a while because there is a dedicated audience that loves those films and i'm one of those people you know, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see because there has already been some of the alternative content too that people have been talking about going to movie theaters, things like sporting events, things like plays, uh, things like mm -hmm. experimental art exhibitions. I don't think that the theatrical experience now that digital projection is a real thing and high speed internet connectivity, uh, there's a lot of capability to do things that are not your typical fare inside of a theater. And I think, think we'll see more of that going forward. So it won't just be for watching first run movies. It might be uh, concerts or music performances, all kinds of things. Well, uh, check out that article and uh, let us know what you think. And uh, without further ado here, let's go to our interview with Seamus McGarvey. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here with Seamus McGarvey. Where am I talking to you from, Seamus? I know you're shooting. Where in the world are you? Well, I'm actually in London. I'm prepping a film in London, and I'm also grading the last film I did with Joe Wright, Cyrano, which will be out later this year, which nice. is shot in Italy. So it's nice to be back in London again. Uh, since the last time I, I was here was while I was shooting The Nevers. We want to talk about The Nevers because it's your, your new project. It's on HBO Max. If you have HBO Max, uh, everyone can go watch it right now. It's uh, glorious. I always fall out of line with current terminology, but is it fair to call it steampunk? Or is there another term for it? I wouldn't say that because there, Joss would probably string me up for saying that. But okay. uh, it, it's set in Victorian era, but it has sort of modern elements. But they're probably politically more prescient than than just the stylization of, of steampunk. But, mm. you know, it, it, I, I know it's been described that way, and it's a, a style that I love anyway in films. I mean, that's why I put it that way, just because as a casual viewer, as someone who's watched the episodes but hasn't done, like, a deep dive into Joss's intention behind it, it, it definitely feels like it's playing with steampunk conventions, at least. Yes. But, uh, yeah, so this isn't your first collaboration with Joss Whedon, obviously. You shot a little a little indie movie maybe people have heard of called The Avengers. But uh, what was it like coming back to work with Joss Whedon on this project? I loved it. It was, it was one of the loveliest calls I ever got. It's always nice to work with a director that you've worked with before and to get the return call. Mm -hmm. But uh, I hadn't worked with Joss, although he'd, he'd uh, asked me to do a couple of projects with him. But I hadn't actually uh, spent... I'd done a film with him. So when I got the call to do the Nevers, without reading the scripts, I was, yes. I know, nice. I'd never done a, a, a TV series before, a, a longer one like this. So I was just really excited at the prospect of, of, of that. And then when I read the scripts, I was just like, I am so excited uh, about what we're going to try to achieve to do in this. And it was just, it was lovely to have that, rejoined her again and we had quite a long period of prep actually 
and we were all in in the one studio so it it gave us a chance to really distill the ideas for for the project uh, together over quite a long period of prep because they were still writing as we were going and fine-tuning mm-hmm. the scripts so it, it was it was really a lovely period of sharing of ideas of, of putting stuff on the table and then sort of distilling them back Random question about that. Uh, since you were already on board while they were writing, just curious because you're going to be creating the look and the palette and the style of the show. I'm not saying did you have a hand in the writing because obviously the writers are writing it, but like were you consulting with the writers? Were they taking any cues from visual ideas that you were playing around with or were you giving them any, was there any give and take in, in the writing? Because usually the script is written and then the cinematographer is hired. Yeah, I, I would definitely not say in the writing per se, but I think that the fact that we were all in this lovely sort of chinichita arrangement in a factory or a warehouse in in the west of London that became our studio, it led the the writers as we walked down this corridor of a palimpsest of ideas, kaleidoscope of ideas that the art department had lined the corridor as you walked towards the office with. So it was every day you'd arrive on set. It was just like a, a scintillating kind of collage of images that would really get into you and under your skin and you really felt that you were imbibing in the era. So I hope that that sort of fed into the writer's perception of the the place that we were going to be filming in. And also, as we gradually started finding locations, I think that the architecture, the, the, the settings of each location inevitably affects the writing because the architecture suggests things. It suggests kind of trajectory of people through the place. So that was really exciting to see how that would. But the writing was a very private affair, you know, with Jane Espenson and, and Joss, then they would just, they would tell us what they had, but it was like bringing out the, the baby at the end. And it, was, <laughs> it, it, was, it was fabulous to see that. And, and to be clear, I wasn't saying like, were you writing stuff? I'm just, I'm just wondering, like when you have all the creative principles kind of all hanging out and talking to each other, you know, pitching ideas, like I assume that they're pitching visual ideas and you're, you know, like. There is that, there, there is that actually, Ben, There's, there, there is that lovely democracy of ideas that it means that, in, that it's sort of in the atmosphere. So I yeah. think people pick, pick up on things inevitably if, if you're all in the room or in the building together. And that's the lovely thing about filmmaking. And that happens in a live way. If you're open to it and elastic enough to receive it, uh, it happens when you're shooting too. And and that's the thing I get the most buzz from in filmmaking is the, the acts of chance that create wonderful, uh, unexpected results. And I think you just have to, as a filmmaker, be be kind of like ready to receive those things because they come at you out of nowhere. And if you've been working on something for an extended period, it sort of tunes your your brain to each other. I think you become very, not exactly feral, but you, you do become like a, a, a little family mm. uh, in the forest and you become, you start thinking, <laughs> you start thinking the same way as each other, you know. And, and th- there is this sort of gradual merging of the of the tribe that's about to make the movie. And I think that something in that, if if you're open to it, means that you can skid and go with it and and think intelligently about whether that shift in direction is the right way to to go because you're already traveling in parallel lines at speed, warp speed, (laughs) especially if you're working in TV, like this is a TV show. I've never worked so fast and hard in all my life because I know that that was my next question. You had shot the pilot of black mirror, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, but that's the only other TV credit I know that you have, unless there's. Well, I, you know, I did. I did. I'm the pilot man. I, I did like Anthony Mangella's number one lady detective agency and, and Mike mm-hmm. Nichols' Wit for HBO. But um, this was one that was going to be a, a longer stint, and yeah. I know that the speed of those other filmmakers wasn't the same way that this had to be. You know, we had limited time to, to shoot, but there was something in that actually in that enforced impetus that makes you think in a different way it makes you a different type of filmmaker it it tunes your reflexes it makes you think with economy because you don't have the kind of luxury of flatulent takes that that go on for ages (laughs) and and indulgent uh 
moments of beauty. You're really, you know, you're cutting your cloth to the story because you, you've got a lot to shoot in a day. Like how many how many pages a day would you would you do on the Nevers? We'd be like maybe fourteen or so, fourteen or fifteen. Fourteen pages, pages a, day. a day? Yeah, yeah. It was like it was quite fast. We were. We oh my were god, that's insane. It. That's even insane for yeah. television. Like television yeah. usually like eight. I know we were we were really speeding, but we had a lot of time to prep, so we knew exactly what we were going into. I'm quite fastidious about about not exactly storyboarding, but certainly shot listing. It's something I've learned from Joe Wright, who after every day of shooting sits down and you know we do the next day, and that was something that I've I loved doing always. You know, is, is knowing what we're going to do in the day. Josh mm-hmm. likes a little bit more uh, movement in that because he likes to see what happens when we see a rehearsal. So the actual shot list came after that. So Matthew Penry Davy, the the AD, and I would would kind of scribble down what the adjustments were, the amendments were, and then we'd we'd all know, and we would able we were able to announce that to the to the team afterwards what we were going to try to achieve that day. And it's wonderful when people know what they're going to do in a day. Um, it just means people can prepare and people can feel included from everybody from the transport to the director just everybody in the team knows what we're trying to achieve wow and i mean i'm assuming also that like the big action sequences that are in the nevers like those i'm assuming you're not doing 14 pages of that in a day because those are no well the action sequences which are key and which actually become the slingshot of the film at the opener with that chase happening Mm -hmm. Um, that we were really lucky to have this amazing stunt coordinator, Rowley Irlam, who had done mm. all the Game of Thrones. He's like, he's got so much oh. gold on his mantelpiece that, that uh, he, <laughs> he needs an extension. But um, <laughs> he was brilliant because I'm not a second unit director. I have no idea how to do a lot of these stunts. A lot of worked on lots of stunty type films, but you always know that, that you've got a great stunt coordinator, second unit, stroke second unit director to do those sort of things. And Rowley was exactly that. So we had one, two, maybe three cameras on main unit. And then Rowley, when he needed to, would take over the D camera and we would give him one of our operators. I would step in on on the B camera or whatever with Pete Rob, who was the, Pete Robertson was the A camera operator. Rodrigo Gutierrez was our B and Una Menges was, uh, came in on dailies. And um, it was just such a, a wonderful thing to be able to let Rowley just go off and be specific about getting those big dynamic shots on either yeah. working with tracking vehicles or stabilized heads or all the stuff that takes you a full day to do five or six shots. But we were working alongside him concurrently. So that's, that worked out really well. One of these days we need to get someone in who like specializes in second unit because I feel like people don't realize how much of the big movies they watch, be it Fast and Furious or whatever, are driven by a second unit that is not really second. It's just, you know, they're working for the first unit director. Yeah. Because when I was watching it, I was actually curious about the the action sequences because they were tight and well uh, executed. And Alana, you had you had a question uh, that you wanted to talk about with uh, with like the use. I did. Yeah. My question, Seamus, was a little bit about how was it fun to do like the forced perspective shots for the giant girl in the Nevers? (laughs) It was. Well, that involved, you know, it was involved a lot of research and looking at how other people had tried and failed to do that sort of thing before. But ultimately, it's totally old school cinematography and special effects work that allows you to do that. And actually, the the sort of hero of of, uh, the research of that was our visual effects supervisor, Johnny Han. And he kind of researched all different movies like Harry Potter and Hagrid and, uh, you know, how, how to do that sort of thing. But it's basically, it's basic mathematics, you know, she was initially her height was, was not double her actual height by doubling her actual height. It made all the mathematics very simple to do. <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, you, you drop the camera half the height that you shot the normal plate at and, and then you move it forward 
so it, it, by half the amount to the subject. So all those things it was a steep learning curve for me because I've never done that kind of work with miniatures or, or false perspective. But uh, it all worked out really well in the end. And we were able to do it. The key was trying to shoot her in the same lighting setup, you know, making sure that there was one occasion in the backyard where she was sitting there with her book where we shot the reverse in a studio. And, you know, I'm usually quite good at shooting fake daylight in a tungsten studio set, but Mm. it it, was just something about it. And we actually worked out. It was about the wind. The cut was, I was like, something's not right. But it was just, we went and reshot it because there was no wind in her hair. So that's what we did in the end. And in the end, we shot the, the big version of her a little bit, slow-mo so that the the dress had a little bit of weight to it and all those little things are things that you just discover but the key is is the lighting continuity between the, the two but it was it was fun to do it because you could actually do the the little mix and overlay comp live on on the set when you we've done the one version so you can actually see the uh the effect and it's wonderful Kind of in the broad scope of the Nevers, what was the the guiding artistic principle? Where was the look coming from in your conversations with Joss? Well, I think Joss, you know, there are so many precedents of of, uh, dun-colored, worthy Victorian dramas, you know, period films that that are more interested in the cobblestone and the the, the dress rather than the, the content. And what Joss wanted really, thematically speaking initially, which is where the photography always ought to come from it was that he wanted this to be like a, a, a shocking veracity believability that you wanted this to feel like have a prescient contemporary edge but set within obviously this time uh, whereas we didn't want to lose the sense of period we experimented with certain things and when we shot clean as a whistle you know which i think joss initially was keen on doing you know and not filtering it it just felt so abrupt and whether that was because we were shooting a, a period film or whether it was just the digital realm with primo lenses was rendering a very kind of crispy. So I ended up sort of using these Dior filters, the, the nets that I've used a few times in the past, which I, I think that initially HBO were, were not very keen on because they thought it might affect the digital, the VFX work. But I had a great relationship with Johnny Han, the visual effects supervisor. And he was able to say, look, we had glimmer glass, slightly less diffusion on hand. And uh, he was able to say, look, the nets are too heavy here. We're shooting against the window that's blooming out. Um, let's let's just flick it out for a, a glimmer glass. And we were able to do that. And uh, everyone seems happy. And the, the visual effects look fantastic in the film. Absolutely. In watching it, I kind of noticed something that I've noticed in a lot of your work and that you've done stuff that obviously like Avengers and plenty of stuff that's like big, big movies. But I feel like the stuff you shoot and this just might be about the directors that you choose to work with or it might be in your approach. But I feel like you get character like your stuff brings across characters, even going back to uh, high fidelity and even way before that. But I feel like the stuff you shoot seems very interested in character work. Is that an intentional thing on your part or? Or is that something that's just a coincidence of... Well, it's just... So thank you for saying that, Ben. That's very nice. But I I think it's not uh, very conscious, but I do love looking at people. Mm-hmm. I, I love stories that are about people or stories that I recognize that are human. But I really love portraiture. I've always been into the close-up. I always really look forward to doing the close-up because I love <laughs> eyes and looking into people's eyes on film. And I think that the camera studies a face in a very peculiar way. And I love that about it. A film, the way a film camera can, and a lens can completely almost enter the, the soul of, of the character that the actor is portraying. I also come from a tradition of naturalism photographically. You know, I know that cinematography is capable of, of great vaulting spectacle and uh, bombast. But actually my personal taste in photography and art in literature in life is naturalism. <laughs> so I'm drawn to that. So I suppose in that there's a simplicity. Also, I don't have the kind of 
dexterity or skill to do stuff that is super, super complex. I just don't have those skill sets. So I like simplicity because it's kind of as much as I can manage. And in that, I think comes an authenticity maybe, or, you know, that people can relate to or, or see a character when there's not the song and dance and all the bells and whistles of, uh, of trickery. Can we talk a little bit about your background, like where you came from? I always like to ask people, like, when was the moment in your life that cinematography kind of entered as a possibility, as a thing you might pursue? Like, what was it that got you connected to that? At every stage, it's a different impulse. It's a different urge. At school, a teacher giving me a, a Super 8 camera and saying, go and make a film. In uh, film school, having a tutor, Jacek Petrusky, who from Poland, who'd worked with Vida and people who would just was so inspiring, who made me think about films and its poetic possibilities, not just the spectacle of it. That there, there's in in the space of the cut of of the rhythm of a film that there's a there's something else that's unique and peculiar to cinema that is not in in photography in any other art form and I've been learning about that ever since but you know it's just at every stage you discover something new and wondrous about the, the, our art form and uh, I think that being curious and continuing to be curious about cinema's possibilities which is obviously a very young art form is something that i'm fascinated by you know, say it's a very young art form I, I agree and i always i always kind of think about that you know like even when you go back and look at movies from 20 years ago they they feel a little dated like the stuff dates itself very quickly but again to kind of go to to your work and i know i just brought up high fidelity but i'll bring it up again that's a film that doesn't really i mean it, it dates itself in that it's about a specific time in place you know and the music that they were listening to and stuff like that but in terms of the character work in terms of the the actual cinematography like it feels feels very modern in a way even that uh, and I'm, I'm not disparaging it in any way but the tv series the reboot of it i feel like is so much of right now that it will date itself more quickly in in five years time whereas i feel like high fidelity you go back and look at it and you go like oh that's the movie that made jack black a star but the stuff about it still feels relevant when you're making stuff are you ever thinking about that like there's always that there's always like a trendy look that people are pursuing and then there's there are films that have like a timelessness to them and again i feel like your films are more of the latter category are you consciously aware of that well I, there are a couple of tropes going on right now that annoy the hell out of me <laughs> <laughs> but which i think are going to make this era feel very dated oh what are they please the, please tell me what they are you don't need to call out anyone's name there's the out of focus back of the head one uh -huh. you know the with, with everything, everything soft in front, the following shot. There's, the, yeah. there's that one. There's a little bit annoying. There's the, <laughs> there's the, the sort of pink and yellow and pink and blue. I've noticed that. that just, I've been seeing that a lot yeah, lately. Just everywhere. It's like a, a sort of a lurid pink purple cerise color that's everyone's lit with. And I'm like, what the hell? Why? And uh, you know, it used to be it's the equivalent of the 1980s bright blue down the street, wet down the street, sort of well, HMI. I, I always with, think about like the uh, the orange and teal, which is usually a grading thing where it's like the background goes very blue and the skin tones go very orange, which is something yes. Michael Bay used a lot, but like everybody used it. And it's so much so that Stu Meshwitz, who makes like color grading plugins, made a plugin just to do that. <laughs> oh, God, right. Well, yeah, I've seen them. You see them at every era. But look, it annoys me because it just it, it, it takes me out of the movie. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we should be afraid of things dating because actually film is artistically and culturally a record of our time as well. And it's a, it's a record of our culture. So having signatures, photographic signatures that are sort of pertain to that time is kind of okay. You know, it's good to go through, walk through eras of stylization and not to be afraid of that. And people might return to it, you know, in, in 40 years time, they'll be they'll be lighting movies and, and, and cerise and blue again. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so in preparation, I went and watched a bunch of your things. I found a short that you did called Flying Saucer Rock and Roll. Oh, and I just, I loved God. it. I'm so glad you saw that, Ben. That is actually, it's my favorite film I've, I've shot. And I'm not joking. Wow. And 
it was made for next to no money in my hometown and, and the neighboring town by Enda Hughes, a brilliant director. And, you know, I'd already by that stage shot a, cup, a couple of features. So yeah. I was going back home to do that. But it was just when I got started talking about it, I mean, I think it was, I don't know how much it was made for, but it was no money. Like we basically begged, borrowed and stole. The Panavision gave us the cameras and the lenses, shot an anamorphic. We, you know, old lenses. We, we shot day for night. We had back projection. We had all these old techniques. And it, it's so full of invention and joy and flying saucers with on, on cat gut yeah. being dangled, you know, that were basically the hubcaps taken off Enda's dad's car. You know, <laughs> then they became the flying saucers. And it has such charm. But it really it, does. You know, I, I can't recommend it enough to people uh, who are listening to this interview. To, uh, you can find it online. It's easy to find. And it's, and it's just gorgeous, too. You know, Steven Spielberg saw it and loved it Whoa. so much. He, he invited Enda and his brother over to Amblin. And in fact, was courting them to do a, a film that didn't see, see the light of day. But it, um, yeah, he he loves that film too. Well, I guess I'm in good I'm in good company. I, there, <laughs> there are so many amazing films of yours that I that I would really like to talk about, but our our time is somewhat limited. But I, I have to say, one of my favorite films of yours is somewhat recent. It's uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, and <sighs> the visual construction of that movie is just unbelievably amazing. And it's one of those movies that doesn't feel covered. It feels like you made a bunch of puzzle pieces that only fit together one way. Is that how it was produced? It was. I'm so glad you saw that as well. Drew is, is such a brilliant man. And uh, unfortunately, the, the film didn't do as well as we'd hoped. But it, it, I'm, I'm so proud of it. It's, it's up there in my top five, definitely, of the films that, that I've worked on that, that I, I love so much. And I love all the performances. And Jeff Bridges is just a dream to be with. But in terms of construction of it, Drew obviously is the writer and the director of the film. So there's a cohesiveness there. And he and I, because we shot in Canada and Vancouver in the middle of dead winter, it was a decision made to build the set that was going to be lit for day as well as for night. And that was just so brilliant to be able to, to do everything, pretty much everything in that one set. And, oh, wow. uh, and and plan it out in advance with um with the designer with the director and build in practical sources into the set so that we could move the camera again drew is somebody who loves moving the camera around the set and looking in all directions so, and that movie like above all is kind of a, a giant mystery puzzle to be solved and when you're making something like that i'm i'm very curious how does it affect your photography how do you show something that later is supposed to i'm supposed to go oh that thing meant this and, and it wasn't what i thought it was without giving away the game like how much of your input goes into like visually creating the arc of the mystery and and how it is solved well, it really comes from the director because he's been living that with that script for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think Drew worked with the designer for a long time before. So there, there are visual cues and design throughout the movie in, in the lattice work that you look through, Douglas Sirkian type clues that you can see that, that there's a sense of uh, things are not quite as they ought to be. And the idea of reflection and double images and, and double standards is occurs a lot in the film so yeah i mean that's all that's really from drew's completely fantastic imagination so it's it's a joy to be around somebody like that who's so talented i hope he he, he makes another film as vaulting in its visual yeah. ambition as that one it's really a movie that I, I think is worth seeing just, I mean, it's a great movie for the performances, for everything, but I think the visuals are like, you could just teach a masterclass in visual construction <laughs> just on, on that film. It's, it's so, it's so brilliant. Oh, wonderful. I also wanted to talk to you about your documentary work. And I know that you've done several documentaries. The one that I most recently saw was the Harry Dean Stanton documentary, Partly Fiction, I think is what it's called. Yes. Are you someone who started in narrative and moved into documentary uh, or did you like, what, what brought no, you to documentary? Hand in hand, really. I mean, it, it comes from my love of, of natural photography. It loves, mm -hmm. It's from my curiosity of our world. Yeah. And the documentaries allow you to the privilege of access to places that you, you've never seen before with the camera as your shield. 
and as your key into these rooms of other people's lives. So it's it's a passport to the paradigm of, of life that exists out there, uh, which you wouldn't normally travel on the little goat paths that we go to between the, the back lot and your and your apartment. So there's that that I love about it. It's the encounters with the unexpected that I just adore. And I've always tried to balance my narrative work with documentary work. And it, I always come out of having shot a documentary with feeling like my eyeballs have been reno- renovated and that we're, <laughs> we're going to do... We're, I'm able to look at things with uh, with keener eyes or with a, a more slanted perspective. And that, that one in particular, the Harry Dean Stanton documentary, which was directed by Sophie Huber, was made initially for very little money just because I had a 5D, Canon 5D, and Sophie and I just used to go out and, and hang out with Harry. She was a very good friend of his. But we all became great friends in the making of it. Sophie and I actually lived together in the in the in the one compound in LA at the time, and we would hang out with Harry. And when he saw the film, he said, "Partly fiction. It should have been called Panty Fiction. That's the story of my life." But, <laughs> but we we had great fun making it. So that was all shot on a five D. Yeah, yeah, literally a five D one lens, a fifty mil lens. And uh, a, a zoom lens is one shot. I shot on the zoom when he sings uh, "Danny Boy," and it, we we just I knew that we were going to need to go in tight with the close-ups. But when we followed Harry around, we wanted this sort of hallucinatory in and out of focus. So it was just with a little fifty mil one point two Canon lens that was we could go into Dantana's bar, or we could go in the streets. We could shoot them in the back of the car with available light, you know, and literally it was such a discovery for me that, wow, street lights can light a person in a car if they're by the window or the, the headlights of the braking car in front illuminates in red like like Satan. Uh, it, was, it was really <laughs> fantastic. Can you point to any a specific example of like an idea that you had while doing a narrative film that you got from your documentary work, like an inspiration from documentary that bled into your narrative work? Absolutely. When I worked on We Need to Talk About Kevin with Lynn Ramsey, and we had Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley just just before we were about to shoot the film, which we shot on, we were planning on shooting on Anamorphic with Fuji Film. It was 35mm film. But we'd been rehearsing the film, and I always have a camera over my shoulder anyway, but we were having a little sort of celebratory drink, knowing that two days later we were going to be on set and starting the movie. And suddenly outside, there was this deluge outside this pub that we're in in Prince Street in New York, the Ear Inn, beautiful old bar. And there was a deluge of rain outside that was like biblical in its intensity. And Tilda just said, and John was there too, let's just go out and, and we, we can sort of do some of the flashback stuff from, from our, that we were, Lynn and I had been struggling how to achieve because the rest of the movie we knew it was going to have this sort of Ozu-like sort of rhythm and rectitude and, and low angles and very static. And so I just ran out with them and uh, tried to shoot them. And they just ran down the street in the rain, through the puddles, with me trying to work out how to focus and, and get exposure and chase them. And then they, they he, John <laughs> lifted his up and span around. Yeah, I couldn't see a thing. They were spinning <laughs> around and I was... And everything was sort of scintillating and and, uh, and getting out of focus. And we got back in, drowned as rats. And we looked back at the footage and Lynn was just like, that's it. That's how we're going to do our flashbacks from here on in. It's it's just this has the, the, the elon, the drive and the passion that I'm after. So that's that's what we decided. So that came from the spontaneity of going with the flow of documentary work that, that not waiting for the track to be led and the, the light yeah. to be right or the, the rain to, to come just to go for it and, and to embrace accident and chance when it happens and to be open to that. It makes all the difference and an audience can feel it. They can see it. That's amazing. That's a great story too. You, you've worked with so many uh, kind of amazing visionary filmmakers like Oliver Stone. Oh, oh yes. 
Of course, <laughs> Oliver Stone. Uh, I was going to talk about Stephen Frears, but I'll, Oliver Stone, I think, is is also probably worth touching on. I think the only other uh, cinematographer we've talked to who's worked with Oliver Stone was Sal Totino, who shot Any Given Sunday. Yes. But uh, yeah, you shot World Trade Center, which is uh, probably the most restrained Oliver Stone movie ever, because most of it takes place <laughs> in a collapsed building and nobody can move. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about like how it was? I mean, it, it's not... I'm not comparing it to a stage play in any way, except for that yeah. so much of it takes place in that one pinned area. Yeah. And well, Oliver, St- Oliver Stone, when I think of Oliver Stone's work too, it's like unrestrained camera doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's a movie where that's just not part of the storytelling. Well, Oliver, I think Oliver, when we finished the film, we got on so well. Uh, you know, when he first met me, I was wearing a, a shirt, like a cowboy shirt in New York, uh, I went down to his hotel and I wasn't supposed to meet him that day. He was going off in a recce, but I thought, I've got to say hello to him. So I went up to him. I said, hello, Mr. Stone. I'm Seamus McGarvey. I'm, I'm interviewing tomorrow for the, the DP's job. And I went, what? You're Irish? Like, really <laughs> Irish? And I said, yes. And Who would have known my, with a name my, like Seamus McGarvey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he took my shirt and popped open the cowboy front buttons and said, where are your fucking subtitles? I'm never going to understand you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when, when actually at that did, point, he, he kind of has to hire you after he did that. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> he did. Actually, he said, put your bags upstairs and we're going on a scout. And at that point, I was just I was hired and I had a wonderful time on, on the film. But at the end of it, he wrote me a, a thank you note. And he said to he said, You've been great, it's been great working with you. Thanks a lot, Mr. Forty Millimeter, which is like <laughs> such a, a put down a put down after all the extraordinary work he's done with Bob Richardson and uh, Rodrigo. Uh, it was like thanks a bunch, Mr. Fucking Forty Millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we're getting very close to when we, we need to move on. I, I could talk you've you've made so many movies that have been, you know, so outrageous and influential and beautiful and I, I would love to talk to you more but I know that uh, our time is a little restricted before we go where can people find you online besides also just literally watching a- any movie on any streaming service because you've shot so many yeah well I'm on Facebook under my own name my Instagram is Shamey Mac S-E-A-M-I-E-M-C mm-hmm. uh, I'm on Twitter as well so under my own name so yeah look forward to, to seeing everybody yeah, yeah, everybody uh, feel free to follow him on Instagram or Twitter, or uh, if you're cool with Facebook, then uh, that too. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to meet you, and I love your work, and I hope we can have you back and, and talk at greater length about some of these uh, projects. I would love to. Your whole background, I'd, I'd love to know more about it. Well, we'll have you back at some point if we can, and uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Ben. So that was Seamus McGarvey. I hope one day we can bring him back on here. I'd love to talk, you know, more in depth about stuff like uh, high fidelity and Avengers, maybe even <laughs> like get into or Avengers. We, we could go back to nosedive. I, 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 you know, I'm sure that by the time he comes back, he'll probably have more stuff he wants to, to talk about. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm excited to see where the nevers goes by the end of the season. Uh, but before we go on to our short ends, Ilya, you have some emails that we have, correct? Oh my God. We got a lot of fan mail for the Randy Tom episode, uh, which seems to have been really popular. Instagram comments, Twitter comments, uh, we even got we got an email from uh, editor Ben Cat's mother who uh, Whoa. <laughs> Ben Cat's mom Ben Cat's mom bothered to, to write us an email is she in her business the I don't believe so but she just had she felt so inspired that she had to uh, write to us she wrote I loved Randy Tom's interview a generational thing perhaps but it also felt like I was auditing a class in sound recording fascinating recollections that only Mr. Tom could share with listeners. Wow. With four exclamation points. And the question from Ben kept the conversation flowing. I could have listened for another hour. Ilian Ben's intros and outros make for some fun listening. All of you are doing such a service to the film industry. Thank you to the entire podcast team. Well, thank you, Suzanne Katz. That that was amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you, first. Suzanne. And thank you for making Ben Katz. Cause you know, that Ben Katz <laughs> we'd be, we'd be uh, hosed. Happy Mother's Day. With, there you go. Happy, happy Mother's Day. So I guess uh, we, we got should some now more, though. Out. No, before oh, we, oh, we go move for it, on, yeah. I got more uh, from Twitter. Uh, Max Smith wrote, uh, this is a fun interview. Do you know what Walter Murch asked Randy Tom to do after their first meeting? 
How about the piece of equipment that Randy found that made the perfect sound for the AT-AT in the Empire Strikes Back? Yes, we we go into all that stuff. And thank you, uh, Max Smith, for uh, the nice Twitter comment. Uh, we also got a, a nice one here from Lucy Autry Wilson. She wrote, it's always interesting to hear Randy Tom talk about sound design for movies. Thank you, Lucy. And then over on Instagram, we got a message from Nagam Osman. I hope I said that correct. That wrote, amazing episode. So inspiring. <laughs> Loved the Yellow Pages mention. Ha 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 ha. So, <laughs> uh, well, well, thanks all of you who wrote in to us and took, took a moment. We uh, really appreciate that. I, I'm sorry we couldn't get to everything, but those three were, were wonderful and wanted to. They are a good representation of all the feedback that we got. So thank you. Well, and, uh, and and I think it's with that that we should announce that we are now the sound design podcast. We're no longer doing going to do cinematographers. We're going <laughs> to talk that, to only, right. <laughs> only legendary sound designers. We've, we're completely changing the show. Anything involving cinema and camera, no, Ben is pulling your leg and I'm playing along with it. But no, it's nice well, to... A little late nice for to, April Fool's. Yeah, we're, we're, we're diversifying a little bit and we're bringing in some other stuff. And with people like Randy Tom, I, I hope you all agree that uh, it's it's really wonderful to have those, uh, those those other folks on the show. Well, and it should be said that our producer, Al- Alana Cody, really worked hard to line up that interview with, with Randy. And I can be a, a crank about stuff sometimes. And I'm like, I thought we were the cinematography podcast. And of course, you don't not interview Randy Tom. The guy's a legend and he's been around forever. But uh, we've also kind of said from the beginning that we, you know, anyone who has an opinion about how films are put together is affecting cinematography or is affected by cinematography in some way. And uh, the craftsmanship that goes into making films is so holistic and comprehensive. And having somebody like Randy Tom on here uh, was, you know, just a rare thrill. Like, I feel like he could have talked for another three hours and I would have just been sitting on the edge of my seat. I'd love to maybe bring him back at some point because I feel like we were able to cover one tenth of his career, maybe. He's done hundreds of uh, humongous movies over the last four decades. So so thank you, everyone, for, who, uh, who reached out. And now, Short Ends. Hey, Ben, it is now time for Short Ends. Uh, what's your short end this week? What is your obsession? I wanted to give a shout out to one of the guests on our show from, well, it was before COVID, so it was probably a year, year and a half ago, uh, Byron Warner who had uh, made me aware of a software I didn't know anything about called Scriptation. I might have mentioned here that I recently got an iPad and I was looking for apps to on, on this project that I can't really talk about yet that I'm, I'm currently working on, but we already have the script. And I remembered Byron talking about Scriptation, so I downloaded it. And holy crap, is this software the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I can't believe I haven't been using Scriptation my whole life. It, it enables you to bring in a PDF... And there's any number of ways that you can make notes on it and you can make notes for different departments and and different people can have various accesses to your notes. And then the problem, the, the Achilles heel of this process for years and years and years, which scriptation has solved. But the problem would be you would, you know, you'd have your script, you'd mark it up and then you'd get the blue pages. And it's like, fuck, my notes aren't on any of the blue pages. So you'd have to take hours and transcribe your notes over onto the blue pages, or you'd have to have them all on sticky notes that you unsticky from one thing and put onto the blue pages. So scriptation, which is like a really amazing paperless workflow, you bring in a PDF, you do all that work, and then you get your you get the next version of the script and it analyzes the two versions, puts all your notes where they used to be in the other version, tells you what all the differences are and you can keep on going. And it's also something that uh, you can sync up with people in different departments, actors like if you're an actor, you can choose your role and it'll highlight all your lines in the whole script. You know, like it's just an amazing, amazing piece of software and it is designed to be used on set. So when you buy it, uh, which it is a subscription, but it's not that expensive and totally worth it. You can have it on your like I have it on my desktop so I can like sit there and like really dig into it on my desktop. But then when I open it on my laptop or or, excuse me, onto my uh, iPad, it's all synced onto the iPad. And it's just an amazing, amazing piece of software. So uh, and I I had never heard of it before. Byron uh, talked about it on our show and he even showed us some of his scriptation notebooks. And I, I said something about it on the podcast and George Foyt, who we talk about 
uh, texted me. He's like, you've never heard of scriptation. It seems like the exact thing that you would be telling everyone about. So here I am telling <laughs> anyone who will listen, uh, if you're going into production, uh, check out scriptation. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're doing a movie at TV. It, it, it seems like it's used a lot in TV. Uh, if you're doing theater, if you're doing anything that requires a script in which you're going to get multiple revisions and drafts and you, even just the markup features just for the ability to mark it up, even if it didn't have that update ability, it, it's pretty amazing. But the fact that you can have all your notes in, in every version of the script and never have to worry about transferring stuff over a genius. So I hope a couple uh, people check it out. So what is your short end this week? I don't know if you'll get the reference, but you've probably heard people talk about in the movie industry, a 2575. You ever heard anyone talk about the 2575? You know what a 2575 is? I want to sound hmm. smart, but I don't. Okay. 2575, that, those four numbers, 2575, has basically been dominated by a company called O'Connor for the last, oh man, I, I, I don't know, how, whenever that, that tripod fluid head came out decades ago. And ever since then, you don't have to say anything but like, oh, I need a 2575 and someone would know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I predict that's going to start to get the waters a bit muddy now because Tokina is coming out with their own version of the 2575, not a tripod, but a zoom lens that goes from 25 millimeters to 75 millimeters. And oh, this so a new way to confuse people with numbers. That's awesome. That's right. So people are going to say 2575 and you're going to think, oh, a tripod, no problem, fluid head. I know what you're talking about. And it's going to be, no, no, no. I'm actually talking about this new lens, this new lens that basically the rumored price had been up until this point. And uh, I'm not really giving anything Please away. Please say this, it's $25,075. That, that, that would make sense. But no, it had been rumored uh, and sort of out there as like the official price was going to be about fifty six, fifty seven hundred dollars $5,700. By the time you hear this, the embargo will be lifted. It's actually coming in at $49.99. So it's a $5,000 mm -hmm. lens. But the quality that you're going to get from this $5,000 lens is significantly higher than you might expect. Tokina has already been doing some incredible lenses and uh, this one's no different. And really they are punching way above their price and it is going to compete with lenses that are many times more expensive. And this sort of zoom range of 2571, this three to one, it doesn't sound like a huge range, but it's a small light lens. It's available in PL mount. It has all professional cinema style stuff. It doesn't have any compromises. It's not one of these new sort of maybe off brand inexpensive zoom lenses that do have some qualitative issues. It's really a premium piece of kit and uh, people are going to be able to start getting it in about two to three months, which is really fast actually for lenses. We have some lenses now that you have to pre-order a year before you get them. So, mm. but this, this lens, uh, 2575, I think it's going to be really popular amongst a wide variety of, uh, of users and uh, it covers super 35. It's not a full frame lens, but damn, it's a two nine and it's really well, it's really well put together. And I would, personally rather take a dedicated super 35 lens that shoots really really well it does what it does really really well than having a compromised lens that maybe doesn't do what you hope it 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 would do and the fact that they can do this for five grand is just incredible that's pretty amazing and tokina has been uh they, they, they've, they've been making great lenses for so long and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of i i own a few tokina lenses Not, nothing that fancy pants but i definitely have some tokina lenses in my kit well, uh, they're being used on all kinds of stuff, too. They haven't done a good job of marketing and telling people exactly where they're being used and on what. But uh, I saw some stuff recently that's well, coming maybe out of you can change that for them. Like you can uh, you can be the guy who, who tells Tokina how to get the word out. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll try my best. I'll, I will try my best because they're, they're really right. great lenses and they deserve, they deserve uh, some more attention. Excellent. Excellent. So Ben, I think we've reached the end of our show. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, please come find me at benrockonline.com. That's probably the easiest place. All my social media uh, links are right on that website and you can uh, hit me up on the, uh, the Twitter or the LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, whatever strikes your fancy. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's uh, where we sell stuff. Uh, you can also find me on all the sort of uh, usual social media stuff. And, and every once in a while, people are mentioning the podcast now on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn and you want to hit me up there, I'm Ilya Friedman on LinkedIn. So there's there's only three of us, but you'll you'll know which ones. There's me, three sure. Ilya Friedmans. Have you, have you guys talked now. to each other? Yeah, it's pretty funny. So, yeah. They're, you they're, have, really? Yeah, there's another one in California, too, which is funny. So. There's a few a, Ben Rocks, and I've actually become friends with one of the other Ben Rocks. I, we, we encountered each other on, on Twitter, and the other, the one who I've become kind of friendly with, he's a D&D &D guy, and he lives up in Seattle <laughs> or nice. in Washington State. 
<laughs> and uh, and he has a kid about my son's age, maybe a little bit younger. But it's just uh, it's it's super weird. And I was like, man, we should have a convention of Ben Rocks. And there's there's another Ben Rock who kind of tolerates me, but has I haven't like corresponded with him on any meaningful way. So uh, yes, you're just tolerated. <laughs> I am, but I think a convention of Ben Rocks would be awesome. Yeah, we'd have to probably go to a color or number system to differentiate one from the other, or go by our middle names. Uh, there, there was, believe it or not, a Jim Smith convention at one point that had thousands of people who went to it all named Jim Smith. You know, there could be a Tom Thompson one. I know uh, I, I have encountered more than one Tom Thompson, and my sister at one point was married to a guy named Tom Thompson. Interesting. 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 All right. Very nice guy. Well, let's thank some people. That was, wow, that, that, that went way away from cinematography. So, uh, yeah, well, first, <laughs> let's, let's thank Ben Katz and his amazing mother. Yeah. Absolutely. His amazing mother who gave us such, uh, who had such nice things to say, but Ben Katz who edits this and uh, hopefully is worked hard, but not too hard to make us not sound like complete morons. Uh, we're making it hard for him right now. He's going to be yes. like, I'm cutting this out. I'm changing this. All right, Sorry, Ben Katz. Because I thanked uh, Kay Zalatrachi leastly last time, we, we should thank him next. Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, not leastly, uh, you know, who, who's not listening to this show, but you know, I, I'd hey, like can to I t- think. Can I tell you a Kay's thing? Oh, sure. Literally yesterday, Kay's had the first kind of party that I have attended with vaccinated people at it at his house. It was outside on his porch. He made uh, he has like this uh, wood fired pizza thing. And uh, he had Ed Sanchez, uh, co-director of Blair Witch Project, uh, Matt Compton, who, you know, you and I both know Matt, a uh, very prolific producer and uh, Alicia and myself there. And it was super weird to be around other humans with no masks on. But we were all vaccinated. You see this color I am right now. This is the yeah. color of jelly. I'm I'm so jelly. I'm jealous of your uh, your party. Well, maybe if you had a podcast that shouted out K's on a weekly basis, <laughs> I, would... I could be then I could then become uh, worthy enough to attend his pizza party. Definitely, uh, there was almost nobody there. But anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, check check K's out at musicbyk's.com. Uh, hire him to score your next movie or web series or do visual effects for you or color correct. I'm not exaggerating. He does all those things. Yeah. He does. And and last but holy crap not least, never least, Alana Cody, who is just kicking all the ass, getting so many amazing interviews set up for us. We have some great ones coming up and uh, can't thank her enough for all her hard work. She's killing it. Really doing, really doing a great job. Hopefully we can talk about all the great new stuff that's coming up here shortly. So, and it's all thanks to her. She's doing it. 100%. So that about does it. And we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Except we won't see you, but you'll hear us. But yeah, you'll, you'll hear us. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.